0: This episode is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter with some bunny slippers from BunnySlippers.com. Look cool like Chris Knight from Real Genius. You know what? They've got all kinds of cool slippers, all kinds of novelty slippers of all sorts. If you like horror movies, they've got horror movie stuff. If you like fantasy, you like science fiction, they've got that. They've got sports stuff. They've got all kinds of stuff. They've got slippers you can plug into USB things. Anyway. Bunnieslippers.com. They are the sponsor of the show. And if you live someplace like in Australia, New Zealand, someplace where it's warm this time of year, they've got cool t-shirts at founditemclothing.com. Check out founditemclothing.com. I'm wearing one right now. can't see it, but it's, it's uh, a shirt that Jeff Bridges wears in the Big Lebowski. Check it out. It's pretty cool. Based off of a Japanese baseball t-shirt. Anyway, so... Uh, this month, we're going to be doing Jack London stories, so check that out. And there will be part of the calendar and what will be coming out listed in the show notes, so check that out right now. And also, why not check out Dave's Corner of the Universe.com? It's Dave's Corner. You've heard him on the podcast, you'll hear him in an upcoming thing that we're doing about. Underground secret bases and fan fiction and cool things like that. Um, Listen for the episode uh, of, uh, I think it's D U G S, uh, Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. Check that out when it becomes available. I'll be hosting the first few episodes, of course, on this feed, so you can always check that out or chuck it out. And, you know, it's your podcast feed. Trim it how you feel. Anyway, uh, money for the shows, various shows. We'll get them their own podcast feeds if you want to listen to PGTTCM just by itself or Black Clock Audio Tales just by itself. Zach Ferguson has his own, but occasionally we're going to throw out Articulate Warblers. And also probably we're going to have some of the shows by Dave from Dave. And hopefully he'll still do some Dave's Corner of the Universe stuff for us, but you know... I love producing podcasts, so if you've got a podcast idea, track me down, and we'll do something, especially if you're in the Portland metro area. Um, I, I'm working with Zach, and he's over in Brighton, England, and, you know, it's working out so far so good. But yeah, no, uh, let us know if you got something that would be of interest to us. So yeah, on with some Jack London. Here we go. And why not check out Monster Kid Radio? And keep an eye and an ear out for twisted pulp. Twisted pulp. Here we go, Jack London, right now. The
1: Sea Wolf by Jack London. Chapter 18. The next day, while the storm was blowing itself out, Wolf Larson and I crammed anatomy and surgery and set Mugridge's ribs. Then, when the storm broke, Wolf Larsen cruised back and forth over that portion of the ocean where we had encountered it, and somewhat more to the westward, while the boats were being repaired and new sails made and bent. Sealing schooner after sealing schooner we sighted and boarded it, most of which were in search of lost boats, and most of which were carrying boats and crews they had picked up and which did not belong to them for the thick of the fleet had been to the westward of us, and the boats, scattered far and wide, had headed in mad flight for the nearest refuge. Two of our boats, with all men safe, we took off the Cisco, and to Wolf Larsen's huge delight and my own grief, we called Smoke with Nielsen and Leach from the San Diego, so that at the end of five days we found ourselves short but four men, Henderson, Holyoke, Williams, and Kelly, and were once more hunting on the flanks of the herd. As we followed it north, we began to encounter the dreaded sea fogs. Day after day the boats lowered and were swallowed up almost, ere they touched the water, while we on board pumped the horn at regular intervals and every fifteen minutes fired the bomb gun. Boats were continually being lost and found it being the custom for a boat to hunt on lay with whatever schooner picked it up until such time it was recovered by its own schooner. But Wolf Larsen, as was to be expected, being a boat short, took possession of the first stray one and compelled its men to hunt with the ghost, not permitting them to return to their own schooner when we sighted it. I remember how he forced the hunter and his two men below a rifle at their breasts, when their captain passed by at Biscuit Toss and held us for information. Thomas Smugridge, so strangely and pertinaciously clinging to life, was soon limping about again and performing his double duties of cook and cabin boy. Johnson and Leach were bullied and beaten as much as ever, and they looked for their lives to end with the end of the hunting season while the rest of the crew lived the lives of dogs and were worked like dogs by their pitiless master. As for Wolf Larsen and myself, we got along fairly well, though I could not quite rid myself of the idea that right conduct for me lay in killing him. He fascinated me immeasurably, and I feared him immeasurably, and yet I could not imagine him lying prone in death. There was an endurance as a perpetual youth about him, which rose up and forbade the picture. I could see him only as living always, and dominating always, fighting and destroying, himself surviving. One diversion of his, when we were in the midst of the herd, and the sea was too rough to lower the boats, was to lower the two boat-pullers and a steerer, and go out himself. He was a good shot, too and brought many a skin aboard under what the hunters termed impossible hunting conditions. It seemed the breath of his nostrils, this carrying his life in his hands, and struggling for it against tremendous odds. I was learning more and more seamanship, and one clear day, a thing we rarely encountered now, I had the satisfaction of running and handling the ghost and picking up the boats myself. Wolf well, Larsen had been smitten with one of his headaches, and I stood at the wheel from morning until evening, sailing across the ocean after the last lee-boat, and heaving to and picking it and the other five up, without command or suggestion from him. Gales we encountered now and again, for it was a raw and stormy region and in the middle of June, a typhoon most memorable to me, and most important because of the changes wrought through it upon my future. We must have been caught nearly at the center of this circular storm, and Wolf Larsen ran out of it and to the southward, first under a double reefed jib and finally under bare poles. Never had I imagined so great a scene. The seas previously encountered were as ripples compared with these, which ran a half mile from crest to crest, and which upreared I am confident above our masthead. So great was it that Wolf Barson himself did not dare to heave to, though he was being driven far to the southward and out of the seal herd. We must have been well in the path of the Trans-Pacific Steamships when the typhoon moderated, and here, to the surprise of the hunters, we found ourselves in the midst of seals, a second herd, or sort of rearguard, they declared, and a most unusual thing. But it was boats over, the boom-boom of guns, and the pitiful slaughter through the long day. It was at this time that I was approached by Leech. I had just finished tallying the skins of the last boat aboard when he came to my side in the darkness and said, in a low tone, can you tell me, Mr. Van Weyden, how far we are off the coast, and what the bearings of Yokohama are?" My heart leaped with gladness, for I knew what he had in mind, and I gave him the bearings, west-northwest and five hundred miles away. Thank you, sir, was all he said as he slipped back into the darkness. Next morning, number three boat and Johnson and Leach were missing. The water breakers and grub boxes from all the other boats were likewise missing, as were the beds and sea bags of the two men. Wolf Larsen was furious. He set sail and bore away into the west-northwest, two hunters constantly at the mastheads and sweeping the sea with glasses, himself pacing the deck like an angry lion. He knew too well my sympathy for the runaways to send me aloft as lookout. The wind was fair but fitful, and it was like looking for a needle in a haystack to raise that tiny boat out of the blue immensity, but he put the ghost through her best paces so as to get between the deserters and the land. This accomplished, he cruised back and forth across what he knew must be their course. On the morning of the third day, shortly after eight bells, a cry that the boat was sighted came down from smoke at the masthead. All hands lined the rail. A snappy breeze was blowing from the west with the promise of more wind behind it, and there, to leeward, in the troubled silver of the rising sun, appeared and disappeared a black speck. We squared away and ran for it. My heart was as lead. I felt myself turning sick in anticipation. And as I looked at the gleam of triumph in Wolf Larsen's eyes, his form swam before me, and I felt almost irresistibly impelled to fling myself upon him. So unnerved was I by the thought of impending violence to Leach and Johnson, that my reason must have left me. I know that I slipped down into the steerage in a daze, and that I was just beginning the ascent to the deck, a loaded shotgun in my hands, when I heard the startled cry, there's five men in that boat!" I supported myself in the companionway, weak and trembling, while the observation was being verified by the remarks of the rest of the men. Then my knees gave from under me and I sank down, myself again, but overcome by shock at knowledge of what I had so nearly done. Also I was very thankful as I put the gun away and slipped back on deck. No one had remarked my absence. The boat was near enough for us to make out that it was larger than any sealing boat and built on different lines. As we drew closer, the sail was taken in and the mass unstepped. Oars were shipped and its occupants waited for us to heave to and take them aboard. Smoke, who had descended to the deck and was now standing by my side, began to chuckle in a significant way. (laughs) Talk of a mess! He giggled. What's wrong? I demanded. Again, he chuckled. <laughs> Don't you see there, in the stern sheets on the bottom? May hey, I never shoot a seal again if that ain't a woman. I looked closely, but was not sure until exclamations broke out on all sides. The boat contained four men, and its fifth occupant was certainly a woman. We were a god with excitement, all except Wolf Larsen who was too evidently disappointed in that it was not his own boat with the two victims of his malice. We ran down the flying jib, hauled the jib sheets to windward and the main sheet flat, and came up into the wind. The oars struck the water, and with a few strokes, the boat was alongside. I now caught my first fair glimpse of the woman. She was wrapped in a long ulster, for the morning was raw and I could see nothing but her face and a mass of light brown hair escaping from under the seaman's cap on her head. The eyes were large and brown and lustrous, the mouth sweet and sensitive, and the face itself a delicate oval, though sun and exposure to briny wind had burnt the face scarlet. She seemed to me like a being from another world. I was aware of a hungry outreaching for her, as of a starving man for bread. But then I had not seen a woman for a very long time. I knew that I was lost in a great wonder, almost a stupor. This then was a woman? So that I forgot myself and my mate's duties and took no part in helping the newcomers aboard. For when one of the sailors lifted her into Wolf Larson's downstretched arms, she looked up into our curious faces and smiled amusedly and sweetly, as only a woman can smile and as I had seen no one smile for so long that I'd forgotten such smiles existed. Mr. Van Wade, Wolf Larsen's voice brought me sharply back to myself. Will you take the lady below and see to her comfort? Make up that spare port cabin, put Cookie to work on it, and see what you can do for that face. It's burned badly. He turned brusquely away from us and began to question the new men. The boat was cast adrift, though one of them called it a bloody shame with Yokohama so near. I found myself strangely afraid of this woman I was escorting aft. Also I was awkward. It seemed to me that I was realizing for the first time what a delicate, fragile creature a woman is, and as I caught her arm to help her down the companion stairs, I was startled by its smallness and softness. Indeed she was a slender, delicate woman as women go, but to me she was so ethereally slender and delicate that I was quite prepared for her arm to crumble in my grasp. All this, in frankness, to show my first impression, after long denial of women in general, and of Maud Brewster in particular. No need to go to any great trouble for me, she protested when I had seated her in Wolf Larsen's armchair, which I had dragged hastily from his counter. The men were looking for land at any moment this morning, and the vessel should be in by night, don't you think so? Her simple faith in an immediate future took me aback. How could I explain to her the situation, the strange man who stalked the sea like destiny, all that it had taken me months to learn? But I answered honestly. If it were any other captain except ours, I should say you would be ashore in Yokohama tomorrow. But our captain is a strange man, and I beg of you to be prepared for anything, understand? For anything." I, I confess, I hardly do understand, she hesitated, a perturbed but not frightened expression in her eyes. Or is it a misconception of mine that shipwrecked people are always shown every consideration? This is such a little thing, you know, we are so close to land. Candidly, I do not know, I strove to reassure her. I wished merely to prepare you for the worst, if the worst is to come. This man, this captain, is a brute, a demon, and one can never tell what will be his next fantastic act. I was growing excited, but she interrupted me with an, Oh, I see, and her voice sounded weary. To think was patently an effort. She was clearly on the verge of physical collapse. She asked no further questions, and I vouchsafed no remark, devoting myself to Wolf Larsen's command, which was to make her comfortable. I bustled about in quite housewifely fashion, procuring soothing lotions for her sunburn, raiding Wolf Larsen's private stores for a bottle of port I knew to be there, and directing Thomas Mugridge in the preparation of the smear statement. The wind was freshening rapidly, the ghost heeling over more and more, and by the time the stateroom was ready she was dashing through the water at a lively clip. I had quite forgotten the existence of Leach and Johnson when suddenly, like a thunderclap, ho came down the open companionway. It was Smoke's unmistakable voice crying from the masthead. I shot a glance at the woman but she was leaning back in the armchair, her eyes closed, unutterably tired. I doubted that she had heard, and I resolved to prevent her seeing the brutality I knew would follow the capture of the deserters. She was tired, very good, she should sleep. There were swift commands on deck, a stamping of feet, and a slapping of reef points as the ghost shot into the wind and about on the other tack. As she filled away and healed, the armchair began to slide across the cabin floor, and I sprang for it just in time to prevent the rescued woman from being spilled out. Her eyes were too heavy to suggest more than a hint of the sleepy surprise that perplexed her as she looked up at me, and she half stumbled, half tottered, as I led her to her cabin. Mugridge grinned insinuatingly in my face as I shoved him out and ordered him back to his galley room and he won his revenge by spreading glowing remarks among the hunters as to what an excellent ladies maid I was proving myself to be. She leaned heavily against me, and I do believe that she had fallen asleep again between the armchair and the stateroom. This I discovered when she nearly fell into the bunk during a sudden lurch of the scooter. She aroused, smiled drowsily, and was off to sleep again and asleep I left her under a heavy pair of sailor's blankets, her head resting on a pillow I had appropriated from Wolf Larson's bunk. End of chapter 18 Wolf by Jack London Chapter 19 I came on deck to find the ghost heading up close on the port tack and cutting into windward of a familiar spritsail, sail close hauled on the same tack. Ahead of us, all hands were on deck, for they knew that something was to happen when Leach and Johnson were dragged aboard. It was four bells. Lewis came aft to relieve the wheel. There was a dampness in the air, and I noticed he had on his oilskins. What are we going to have? I asked him. A healthy young slip of a gale from the breath of it, sir," he answered, "with a splatter of rain, just to wet our gills and no more." Too bad we sighted them, I said, as the ghost bow was flung off a point by a large sea, and the boat leaped for a moment past the jibs and into our line of vision. Lewis gave a spoke and temporized. They'd never have made the land, sir, I'm thinking. Think not? I queried. No, sir. Did you feel that? A puff had caught the schooner, and he was forced to put the wheel up rapidly to keep her out of the wind. Tis no eggshell float on this sea an hour come, and it's a stroke of luck for them. We're here to pick them up. Wolf Larsen strode aft from amidships, where he had been talking with the rescued men. The catlike sprigness in his tread was a little more pronounced than usual, and his eyes were bright and snappy. Three oilers and a fourth engineer was his greeting, but we'll make sailors out of them, or boat pullers, at any rate. Now, one of the ladies. I know not why, but I was aware of a twinge or pang like the cut of a knife when he mentioned her. I thought it a certain silly fastidiousness on my part, but it persisted in spite of me, and I merely shrugged my shoulders in answer. Wolf Larsen pursed his lips in a long quizzical whistle. What's her name then? He demanded. I don't know, I replied. She's asleep, and she was very tired. In fact, I'm waiting to hear the news from you. What vessel was it? Mail steamer, he answered shortly. The city of Tokyo, from Frisco, bound for Yokohama. Disabled in that typhoon. Old tub. Opened up top and bottom like a sieve. They were adrift four days. And you don't know who or what she is, eh? Huh? Maid, wife, or widow? Well, well. He shook his head in a bantering way and regarded me with laughing eyes. Are you, I began. It was on the verge of my tongue to ask if he were going to take the castaways into Yokohama. Am I what? he asked. What do you intend doing with Leech and Johnson? He shook his head. Really, um, I don't know. You see, with these additions, I have about all the crew I want. And they're about all the escaping they want, I said. Why not give them a change of treatment, take them aboard, and deal gently with them. Whatever they have done. They have been hounded into doing. By me? By you, I answered steadily. And I give you warning, Wolf Larsen, that I may forget love of my own life in the desire to kill you if you go too far in maltreating those poor wretches. Bravo! he cried. You do me proud, hump. You've found your legs with a vengeance. You're quite an individual. You were unfortunate in having your life cast in easy places, but you're developing, and I like you the better for it." His voice and expression changed. His face was serious. "'Do you believe in promises?' he asked. "'Are they sacred things?' "'Of course,' I answered. "'Then here's a compact,' he went on, consummate actor. "'If I promise not to lay my hands upon Leech, Will you promise, in turn, not to attempt to kill me? Oh, not that I am afraid of you, not that I am afraid of you," he hastened to add. I could hardly believe my ears. What was coming over the man? Is it a go? he asked impatiently. A go, I answered. His hand went out to mine, and I shook it heartily. I could have sworn I saw the mocking devil shine up for a moment in his eyes. We strolled across the poop to the lee side. The boat was close at hand now, and in desperate plight. Johnson was steering, Leech bailing. We overhauled them about two feet to their one. Wolf Larsen motioned Lewis to keep off slightly, and we dashed abreast of the boat, not a square of feet to windward. The ghost blanketed it. The spritsail flapped emptily and the boat righted to an even keel, causing the two men swiftly to change position. The boat lost headway and as we lifted on a huge surge toppled and fell into the trough. It was at this moment that Leach and Johnson looked up into the faces of their shipmates who lined the rail amidships. There was no greeting. They were as dead men in their comrades eyes and between them was the gulf that parts the living and the dead. The next instant they were opposite the poop where stood Wolf Larsen and I. We were falling in the trough, they were rising on the surge. Johnson looked at me, and I could see that his face was worn and haggard. I waved my hand to him, and he answered the greeting, but with a wave that was hopeless and despairing. It was as if he were saying farewell. I did not see into the eyes of Leach, for he was looking at Wolf Larsen, the old and implacable snarl of hatred strong as ever on his face. Then they were gone astern. The spritsail filled with the wind, suddenly careening a frail open craft till it seemed it would surely capsize. A white cap foamed above it and broke across in a snow-white smother. Then the boat emerged, half swamped. Leach flinging the water out, and Johnson clinging to the steering oar, his face white and anxious. Wolf Larsen barked a short laugh in my ear and strode away to the weather side. Of I expected him to give orders for the ghost to heave too, but she kept on her course and he made no sign. Lewis stood imperturbably at the wheel, but I noticed the grouped sailors forward turning troubled faces in our direction. Still the ghost tore along till the boat dwindled to a speck, when Wolf Larson's voice rang out in command and he went about on a starboard tack. Back we held, two miles and more, to windward of the struggling cockle shell when the flying jib was run down and the schooner hove to. The sealing boats are not made for windward work. Their hope lies in keeping a weather position so that they may run before the wind for the schooner when it breezes up. But in all that wild waste there was no refuge for Leech and Johnson save on the ghost and they resolutely began the windward beat. It was slow work in the heavy sea that was running. At any moment they were liable to be overwhelmed by the hissing combers. Time and again, and countless times, we watched the boat luff into the big whitecaps, lose headway and be flung back like a cork. Johnson was a splendid seaman, and he knew as much about small boats as he did about ships. At the end of an hour and a half he was nearly alongside, standing past our stern on the last leg out, aiming to fetch us on the next leg back. So, you've changed your mind, I heard Wolf Larsen mutter, half to himself, half to them, as though they could hear. You want to come aboard, eh? Well then, just keep a-coming, hard up with that helm. He commanded Ufti Ufti, the Kanaka, who had in the meantime relieved Lewis at the wheel. Command followed command. As the schooner paid off, the fore and main sheets were slacked away for fair wind. And before the wind we were, and leaping, when Johnson, easing his sheet at imminent peril, cut across our wake a hundred feet away. Again Wolf Larson laughed, at the same time beckoning them with his arm to follow. It was evidently his intention to play with them. A lesson, I took it, in lieu of a beating, though a dangerous lesson for the frail craft stood in momentary danger of being overwhelmed. Johnson squared away promptly and ran after us. There was nothing else for him to do. Death stalked everywhere and it was only a matter of time when some one of these many huge seas would fall upon the boat, roll over it, and pass on. "'Tis the fear of death at the hearts of them,' Lewis muttered in my ear, as I passed forward to see to taking in the flying jib and staysail. "'Oh, he'll heave to in a little while and pick them up,' I answered cheerfully. "'He's bent upon giving them a lesson, that's all.' Lewis looked at me shrewdly. Think so? he asked. Surely, I answered. Don't you? I think nothing of but me own skin these days, was his answer. And tis with wonder I'm filled as to the working out of things. A pretty mess that Frisco whiskey got me into, and a prettier mess that woman's got you into aft there. And it's meself that knows ye for a blitherin' fool. What do you mean? I demanded, for, having sped his shaft, he was turning away. What do I mean? He cried. And it's you that asks me? Just not what I mean, but what the wolf will mean. The wolf, I said. The wolf. If trouble comes, will you stand by? I asked impulsively, for he had voiced my own fear. Stand by? tis fat old Lewis I stand by, and trouble enough it'll be. We're at the beginning of things, I'm telling you, the bare beginning of things. I had not thought you so great a coward, I sneered. He favored me with a contemptuous stare. If I raised never a hand for that poor fool, pointing astern to the tiny sail. Do you think I'm hungering for a broken head for a woman I never laid me eyes upon before this day? I turned scornfully away and went aft. Better get in those topsails, Mr. Van Waden, Wolf Larsen said as I came on the poop. I felt relief, at least as far as the two men were concerned. It was clear he did not wish to run too far away from them. I picked up hope at the thought and put the order swiftly into execution. I had scarcely opened my mouth to issue the necessary commands when eager men were springing to halyards and downhauls and others were racing aloft. This eagerness on their part was noted by wolf larsen with a grim smile. Still we increased our lead, and when the boat had dropped astern several miles, we hove to and waited. All eyes watched it coming, even wolf larsen's, but he was the only unperturbed man aboard. Lewis, gazing fixedly, betrayed a trouble in his face he was not quite able to hide. The boat drew closer and closer, hurling along through the seething green like a thing alive, lifting and sending and tossing across the huge backbreakers or disappearing behind them, only to rush into sight again and shoot skyward. It seemed impossible that it could continue to live. Yet with each dizzying sweep, it did achieve the impossible. A rain squall drove past, and out of the flying wet the boat emerged almost upon us. Hard up there, Wolf Larsen shouted, himself springing to the wheel and whirling it over. Again the ghost sprang away and raced before the wind, and for two hours Johnson and Leech pursued us we hove-to and ran away hove-to and ran away and ever astern the struggling patch of sail tossed skyward and fell into the rushing valleys it was a quarter of a mile away when a thick squall of rain veiled it from view it never emerged the wind blew the air clear again but no patch of sail broke the troubled surface I thought I saw for an instant the boat's bottom show black in a breaking crest. At the best, that was all. For Johnson and Leach, the travail of existence had ceased. The men remained grouped amidships. No one had gone below, and no one was speaking. Nor were any looks being exchanged. Each man seemed stunned. Deeply contemplative, as it were, and not quite sure, trying to realize just what had taken place. Wolf Larsen gave them little time for thought. He at once put the ghost upon her course, a course which meant the seal herd and not Yokohama Harbor. But the men were no longer eager as they pulled and hauled, and I heard curses amongst them which left their lips smothered and as heavy and lifeless as were they. Not so was it with the hunters. Smoke, the irrepressible, related a story, and they descended into the steerage, bellowing with laughter. As I passed to leeward of the galley, on my way aft, I was approached by the engineer we had rescued. His face was white, his lips were trembling. Good God, sir, what kind of a craft is this? he cried. You have eyes, you have seen, I answered almost brutally, what of the pain and fear at my own heart. Your promise? I said to wolf larsen. I was not thinking of taking them aboard when I made that promise, he answered. And anyway, you'll agree I've not laid my hands upon them. Far from it. (laughs) <laughs> Far from it! He laughed a moment later. I made no reply. I was incapable of speaking. My mind was too confused. I must have time to think, I knew. This woman sleeping even now in this spare cabin was a responsibility which I must consider. And the only rational thought that flickered through my mind was that I must do nothing hastily. If I were to be any help to her at all. End of chapter 19. The Sea Wolf by Jack London. Chapter 20. The remainder of the day passed uneventfully. The young slip of a gale, having wetted our gills, proceeded to moderate the fourth engineer, and the three oilers, after a warm interview with Wolf Larsen, were furnished with outfits from the slop chests, assigned places under the hunters, on the various boats and watches on the vessel, and bundled forward into the forecast. They went protestingly, but their voices were not loud. They were awed by what they had already seen of Wolf Larsen's character while the tale of woe they speedily heard in the forecastle took the last bit of rebellion out of them. Miss Brewster, we had learned her name from the engineer, slept on and on. At supper I requested the hunters to lower their voices so she was not disturbed, and it was not till next morning that she made her appearance. It had been my intention to have her meal served apart, but Wolf Larsen put down his foot. Who was she that she should be too good for cabin table and cabin society had been his demand. But her coming to the table had something amusing in it. The hunters fell silent as clams. Jack Horner and Smoke alone were unabashed, stealing stealthy glances at her now and again and even taking part in the conversation. The other four men glued their eyes on their plates and chewed steadily and with thoughtful precision their ears moving and wobbling in time with their jaws like the ears of so many animals. Wolf Larsen had little to say at first, doing no more than reply when he was addressed. Not that he was abashed, far from it. This woman was a new type to him, a different breed from any he had ever known, and he was curious. He studied her, his eyes rarely leaving her face unless to follow the movements of her hands or shoulders. I studied her myself, and though it was I who maintained the conversation, I know that I was a bit shy, not quite self-possessed. His was the perfect poise, the supreme confidence in itself which nothing could shake, and he was no more timid of a woman than he was of storm in battle. And when shall we arrive at Yokohama? She asked, turning to him and looking him squarely in the eyes. There it was. The question flat. The jaws stopped working, the ears ceased wobbling, and though eyes remained glued on plates, each man listened greedily for the answer. In four months, possibly three, if the season closes early, Wolf Larsen said. She caught her breath and stammered. I, I thought I was given to understand that Yokohama was only a day's sail away. It. Here she paused and looked about the table at the circle of unsympathetic faces staring hard at the plates. It is not right, she concluded. That is a question you'll have to settle with Mr. Van Weyden there, he replied, nodding to me with a mischievous twinkle. Mr. Van Weyden is what you may call an authority on such things as rights. Now I, who am only a sailor, would look upon the situation somewhat differently. It may possibly be your misfortune that you have to remain with us, but it is certainly our good fortune." He regarded her smilingly. Her eyes fell before his gaze, but she lifted them again, and defiantly to mine. I read the unspoken question there. Was it right? But I had decided that the part I was to play must be a neutral one, so I did not answer. What do you think? she demanded. That it is unfortunate, especially if you have any engagements falling due in the course of the next several months. But since you say that you were voyaging to Japan for your health, I can assure you that it will improve no better anywhere than aboard the Ghost. I saw her eyes flash with indignation, and this time it was I who dropped mine, while I felt my face flushing under her gaze. It was cowardly, but what else could I do? Mr. Van Weyden speaks with the voice of authority, <laughs> Wolf Larsen laughed. I nodded my head and she, having recovered herself, waited expectantly. Not that he is much to speak of now, Wolf Larsen went on, but he has improved wonderfully. You should have seen him when he came on board. A more scrawny, pitiful specimen of humanity one could hardly conceive. Isn't that so, Kerfoot? Kerfoot, thus directly addressed, was startled into dropping his knife on the floor, though he managed to grunt affirmation. Developed himself by peeling potatoes and washing dishes, That Kerfoot? Again the worthy grunted. Look at him now. True, he is not what you would term muscular. But still, he has muscles, which is more than he had when he came aboard. Also, he has legs to stand on. You would not think so to look at him, but he was quite unable to stand alone at first. The hunters were snickering, but she looked at me with a sympathy in her eyes which more than compensated for Wolf Larsen's nastiness. In truth, it had been so long since I had received sympathy that I was softened. And I became then, and gladly, her willing slave. But I was angry with Wolf Larsen. He was challenging my manhood with his slurs, challenging the very legs he claimed to be instrumental in getting for me. I may have learned to stand on my own legs, I retorted, but I have yet to stamp upon others with them. He looked at me insolently. Your education is only half-completed, then, he said dryly, and turned to her. We are very hospitable upon the coast. Mr. Van Waden has discovered that. We do everything to make our guests feel at home. Eh, Mr. Van Waden? Even to the peeling of potatoes and the washing of dishes, I answered, to say nothing to wringing their necks at a very fellowship. I beg of you not to receive false impressions of us from Mr. Van Waden, he interposed with mock anxiety. You will observe, Miss Brewster, that he carries a dirk in his belt. Uh, <clears throat> a most unusual thing for a ship's officer to do. While really very estimable, Mr. Van Weyden is sometimes, how shall I say, uh, quarrelsome, and harsh measures are necessary. He is quite reasonable and fair in his calm moments, and as he is calm now, we will not deny that only yesterday he threatened my life. I was well nigh choking, and my eyes were certainly fiery. He drew attention to me. Look at him now. He can scarcely control himself in your presence. He's not accustomed to the presence of ladies, anyway. I shall have to arm myself before I dare go on deck with him. He shook his head sadly, murmuring, Too bad, too bad, while the hunters burst into guffaws of laughter. The deep-sea voices of these men rumbling and bellowing in the confined space produced a wild effect. The whole setting was wild, and for the first time, regarding this strange woman and realizing how incongruous she was in it, I was aware of how much a part of it I was myself. I knew these men and their mental processes. Was one of them myself, living this seal-hunting life, eating this seal-hunting fare, thinking largely the seal-hunting thoughts. There was for me no strangeness to it, to the rough clothes, the coarse faces, the wild laughter, and the lurching cabin walls and swaying sea lamps. As I buttered a piece of bread, my eyes chanced to rest upon my hand. The knuckles were skinned and inflamed clear across, the fingers swollen, the nails rimmed with black. I felt the mattress-like growth of beard on my neck, knew that the sleeve of my coat was ripped, the button was missing from the throat of the blue shirt I wore. The dirk mentioned by Wolf Larsen rested in its sheath on my hip. It was very natural that it should be there. How natural I had not imagined until now, when I looked upon it with her eyes, and knew how strange it and all that went with it must appear to her but she divined the mockery in Wolf Larsen's words and again favored me with a sympathetic glance. But there was a look of bewilderment also in her eyes. That it was mockery made the situation more puzzling to her. I may be taken off by some passing vessel perhaps, she suggested. There will be no passing vessels except other sailing schooners, Wolf Larsen made answer. "'I have no clothes, nothing,' she objected. "'You hardly realize, sir, that I am not a man, "'or that I am unaccustomed to the vagrant, careless life "'which you and your men seem to lead.' "'The sooner you get accustomed to it, the better,' he said. "'I'll furnish you with cloth, needles, and thread,' he added. "'I hope it will be not too dreadful a hardship "'for you to make yourself a dress or two. She made a wry pucker with her mouth, as though to advertise her ignorance of dressmaking. That she was frightened and bewildered, and that she was bravely striving to hide it, was quite plain to me. I suppose you're like Mr. Van Waden there, accustomed to having things done for you. Well, I think doing a few things for yourself will hardly dislocate any joints. By the way, what do you do for a living? She regarded him with amazement, unconcealed. I mean no offense, believe me. People eat, therefore, they must procure the wherewithal. These men here shoot seals in order to live. For the same reason, I sail this schooner, and Mr. Van Waden, for the present at any rate, earns his salty grub by assisting me. Now, what do you do? She shrugged her shoulders. Do you feed yourself, or does someone else feed you? I'm afraid someone else has fed me most of my life, she laughed, trying bravely to enter into the spirit of his quizzing, though I could see a terror dawning and growing in her eyes as she watched Wolf Larsen. And I suppose someone else makes the bed for you. I have made beds, she replied. Very often? She shook her head with mock ruefulness. Do you know what they do to poor men in the States who, like you, do not work for a living? I am very ignorant, she pleaded. What do they do to the poor men who are like me? They send them to jail. The crime of not earning a living in their case is called vagrancy. If I were Mr. Van Weyden, who harps eternally on questions of right and wrong, I'd ask, by what right do you live when you do nothing to deserve living? But as you are not, Mr. Van Weyden, I don't have to answer, do I?" She beamed upon him through her terror-filled eyes, and the pathos of it cut me to the heart. I must in some way break in and lead the conversation into other channels. Have you ever earned a dollar by your own labor? He demanded, certain of her answer, a triumphant vindictiveness in his voice. Yes, I have, she answered slowly, and I could have laughed aloud at his crestfallen visage. I remember my father giving me a dollar once when I was a little girl for remaining absolutely quiet for five minutes. He smiled indulgently. But that was long ago, she continued, and you would scarcely demand a little girl of nine to earn her own living. "'At present, however,' she said after another slight pause, "'I earn about $1,800 a year.' "'With one accord, all eyes left the plates and settled on her. "'A woman who earned $1,800 a year was worth looking at.' "'Wolf Larsen was undisguised in his admiration. "'Salary or piecework?' he asked. Piecework, she answered promptly. Eighteen hundred, he calculated. That's a hundred and fifty dollars a month. Well, Miss Brewster, there's nothing small about the gross. Consider yourself odd salary during the time you remain with us. She made no acknowledgement. She was too unused as yet to the whims of the man to accept them with equanimity. I forgot to inquire, he went on suavely. As to the nature of your occupation, what commodities do you turn out? What tools and materials do you require? Paper and ink, she laughed. And oh, also a typewriter. You are Maud Brewster, I said slowly and with certainty, almost as though I were charging her with a crime. Her eyes lifted curiously to mine. How do you know? Aren't you? I demanded. She acknowledged her identity with a nod. It was Wolf Larsen's turn to be puzzled. The name and its magic signaled nothing to him. I was proud that it did mean something to me, and for the first time in a weary while, I was convincingly conscious of a superiority over him. I remember writing a review of a thin little volume I had begun carelessly when she interrupted me. Hugh she cried. You are... She was now staring at me in wide-eyed wonder. I nodded my identity in turn. Humphrey Van Weyden, she concluded, then added with a sigh of relief, and unaware that she had glanced that relief at Wolf Larsen. I am so glad. I remember the review, she went on hastily, becoming aware of the awkwardness of her remark. That too, too flattering review. Not at all, I denied valiantly. You impeach my sober judgment and make my canons of little worth. Besides, all my brother critics were with me. Didn't Lang include your kiss endured among the four supreme sonnets by women in the English language? But you called me the American Mrs. Minnell was it not true i demanded no not that she answered i was hurt we can measure the unknown only by the known i replied in my finest academic manner as a critic i was compelled to place you you have now become a yardstick yourself Seven of your thin little volumes are on my shelves, and there are two thicker volumes, the essays, which you will pardon me saying, and I know not which is flattered more, fully equal your verse. The time is not far distant, when some unknown will arise in England, and the critics will name her the English Maud Brewster. You are very kind, I am sure, she murmured and the very conventionality of her tones and words with the host of associations it aroused of the old life on the other side of the world gave me a quick thrill. Rich with remembrance, but stinging sharp with homesickness. And you were Maud Brewster, I said solemnly, gazing across at her. And you are Humphrey Van Weden. She said, gazing back at me with equal solemnity and awe. How unusual. I don't understand. We surely are not to expect some wildly romantic sea story from your sober pen. No, I am not gathering material, I assure you, was my answer. I have neither aptitude nor inclination for fiction. Tell me, why have you always buried yourself in California? she next asked it has not been kind of you we of the east have seen too very little of you too little indeed of the dean of american letters the second i bowed too and disclaimed the compliment i nearly met you once in philadelphia some browning affair or other you were to lecture you know my train was four hours late and then we quite forgot where we were leaving Wolf Larsen stranded and silent in the midst of our flood of gossip. The hunters left the table and went on deck, and still we talked. Wolf Larsen alone remained. Suddenly, I became aware of him, leaning back from the table and listening curiously to our alien speech of a world he did not know. I broke short off in the middle of a sentence. The present, with all its perils and anxieties, rushed upon me with stunning force. It smote Miss Brewster likewise, a vague and nameless terror rushing into her eyes as she regarded Wolf Larson. He rose to his feet and laughed awkwardly. The sound of it was metallic. (laughs) Oh, don't mind me, he said, with a self-depreciatory wave of his hand. I don't count. Go on, go on, I pray you. But the gates of speech were closed, and we too rose from the table and laughed awkwardly. End of chapter 20